Hello everyone and welcome to the June 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. An appellate court in federal class action concluded that delivery truck drivers should have been classified as employees. Here's what happened in the case of Ruiz versus Affinity Logistics Corporation. Fernando Ruiz previously worked as a driver for Penske Logistics Corporation, a furniture delivery company that had a contract with Sears. His job status was that of an employee. When Sears terminated its contract with Penske, the drivers were advised that Affinity Logistics Corporation would take over Penske's contract. Affinity told Ruiz that other, and the other drivers that if they wished to be hired by Affinity, they had to become independent contractors. The drivers needed their own fictitious business name, a business license, and a commercial checking account. With Affinity's help, Ruiz formed his own company and obtained a federal employer identification number and a separate business banking account. Each driver was also required to sign an independent truckman's agreement and equipment lease agreement. These agreements included clauses stating that the parties were entering into an independent contractor relationship. Drivers regularly worked about five to seven days per week. An Affinity employee would call the drivers each day to tell them whether or not they were working the following day. Drivers had to request time off three to four weeks in advance, and Affinity had discretion to deny those requests. Drivers were required to paint their trucks white, and the trucks had a Sears logo and Affinity's name and motor carrier number on the door. Most drivers drove the same truck every day. Affinity handled upkeep of trucks and arranged for loaner trucks when trucks broke down, deducting these costs from drivers' pay. Affinity required drivers to stock their trucks with certain supplies, such as appliance and furniture totes, plastic mattress return bags, protective blankets, pads, tie-down straps, and tools. Affinity also required that drivers use a specific type of mobile telephone. Each driver was required to have a helper or secondary deliver, a secondary deliver driver, I'm sorry, on the truck with them. Helpers had to submit a background check and be approved by Affinity. Drivers were required to wear uniforms and abide by certain grooming requirements. Ruiz filed a class action claiming Affinity wrongfully classified the drivers as independent truck contractors and failed to pay drivers sick leave, vacation, holiday, and severance wages, and were improperly charged for workers' compensation insurance. After a three-day bench trial, the district court concluded that Georgia law applied to the independent contractor slash employee question and that Ruiz was an independent contractor under Georgia law. The Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed in the published case of Ruiz versus Affinity Logistics Corporation. The court reasoned that the driver's employer had the right to control the details of their work and that additional secondary factors also weighed in favor of a finding that the drivers were employees. The panel remanded the case to the district court for further proceedings. It seems like healthcare and kickbacks have become a tenacious business model with reports of major litigation and settlements appearing regularly in the media. The news today has yet another report. 
Omnicare Inc. agreed to pay $124 million to settle allegations that nursing home pharmacy company entered below-cost contracts to supply prescription medication and other pharmaceutical drugs to skilled nursing facilities. Omnicare is the nation's largest provider of pharmaceuticals and pharmacy services to nursing homes. The company disclosed a preliminary $120 million settlement in October and avoided a jury trial that had been scheduled on the case. An Omnicare spokesman affirmed that the settlement was not an admission to guilt. The Justice Department said over $8 million of the settlement will go to states that jointly funded the Medicare programs that were affected. The settlement resolves allegations brought in two lawsuits filed by so-called whistleblowers under the False Claims Act. The first whistleblower, former Omnicare employee Donald Gale, will receive over $17 million. And now our fraud report. An Orange County jur grand jury indicted 45-year-old Kareem Ahmed and 14 others last week, alleging he formulated topical creams and oversaw an extensive network of kickbacks that paid doctors and pharmacists more than $25 million to prescribe and distribute the products. Kareem Ahmed, president of Landmark Medical Management, and the others face a total of 44 felony charges. With little prior history of political giving, Ahmed emerged as a major donor to Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. He gave $1 million to the pro-Obama Priorities USA action and an additional $5,000 to, to the president's campaign. Ahmed also made the list of 100 top donors to outside spending groups and gave $100,000 each to the House Majority PAC and Senate Majority PAC. He also donated thousands more to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Los Angeles County Democratic Central Committee. Ahmed also donated about $76,000 in total to the Obama Victory Fund in 2012. Ahmed reportedly donated to a number of Democratic senators and representatives, including $5,000 to Florida Senator Bill Nelson's 2012 re-election campaign and $5,200 to Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey's coffers. Ahmed also gave California Representative Brad Sherman a total of $7,500 in 2012. That seemingly merited a shout from Sherman on the House floor. On June 27, 2012, Sherman hat-tipped Ahmed and another doctor in attendance, who Sherman said show leadership of the Muslim community in the Los Angeles area. Ahmed claimed in a 2012 interview with the outlet TPM that California Representative Nancy Pelosi was his best friend. One year before that, then-Assemblyman and Assembly Insurance Committee Chairman Jose Solorio sponsored a bill to stop workers' comp profiteering through drug compounding. Solorio said at the time that drug compounding has exploded as a physician profit center in workers' comp. However, the legislation withstood heavy lobbying from Ahmed's company, Landmark Medical Management. The firm's former vice president, Bruce Koenig, took credit for gathering opposition to the bill and helping hammer out a more industry-palatable palatable version. The state bar disbarred Koenig in 2000 for misappropriating about $40,000 of client funds and other offenses. Koenig reportedly claimed that Solorio's bill, as signed into law, was essentially toothless because doctors could get around restrictions by administering the compounds themselves in their offices. 
Other interesting criminal cases are pending that raise questions about the role of political influence. Senator Ronald S. Calderon and his brother, Tom, have been indicted on public corruption charges. The case alleges that Ronald Calderon accepted $88,000 in bribes from an undercover FBI agent to affect legislation to extend film industry tax credits and change workers' compensation laws. It goes without saying that the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and their two trade groups, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America and Biotechnology Industry Organization, lobbied on at least 1,600 pieces of legislation between 1998 and 2004. Pharmaceutical companies spent $900 million on lobbying between 1998 and 2005, more than any other industry. During the same period, they donated more than $89 million to federal candidates and political parties, giving approximately three times as much to Republicans as to Democrats. The industry is 1,274 registered lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So the question is this, what does the pharmaceutical industry expect to gain in return? Another follow-up story to the landmark medical management indictment in Orange County last week provides details about the manslaughter case that is included in the criminal indictment. A specialized skin cream prescribed by a local doctor for a woman's back and knee pain allegedly killed her five-month-old baby after he came in contact with it. The infant's parents are suing the mother's doctor whose involvement in the case also led to him being charged with involuntary manslaughter. The parents of the baby have filed a product liability and medical negligence lawsuit against Dr. Andrew Jarminski, physician assistant Joseph Gutierrez, healthcare pharmacy, Allied Medical Group and Industrial Pharmacy Management. Industrial Pharmacy Management has a connection to another massive workers' compensation fraud case. Its managing partner is Michael Drobot, who pleaded guilty in federal court in April to his role in a half-billion-dollar workers' compensation fraud scheme. The lawsuit claims Gallegos' mother, Priscilla Lujan, went to Jarminski's Long Beach office for treatment for injuries she suffered while working at Goodwill Industries. Jarminski allegedly prescribed a compound transdermal cream composed of the antidepressant amitriptyline, the pain reliever tramadol, and the cough suppressant dextromethorphan. Lujan claims she went home that night and applied the cream to her knee and back as directed by Dr. Jarminski. After using the medication, she took care of her baby including preparing a bottle for him. Lujan put the baby to sleep in her bed and awoke in the morning to find him unresponsive. He died an hour later as a result of multiple drug intoxication with high levels of three drugs in the compound cream prescribed by Jarminski. Ruling the death a homicide, the coroner's report suggested the baby ingested the medication. The lawsuit suggests the compound cream should not have left Jarminski's office because its label said it was only to be applied in a medical office under a doctor's direction. There were other problems with the label as well. The bottle was not properly labeled with Lujan's name. What the, what the prescription was for or how to use it. The cream was prescribed for Lujan was also costly. Jarminski's office billed the comp carrier $1,700 
for the initial 25-day supply of the cream. Jarminski was informed the cream was linked to Lujan's son's death, but that allegedly did not stop the doctor from sending more creams. At least two to four more tubes of cream were sent to Lujan after her son's death. The prescription, production, and distribution of compound transger transdermal creams are at the center of the sealed indictment delivered last week by the Orange County Grand Jury. Fifteen people were indicted for their roles in the alleged scheme, which purportedly involved more than $25 million in kickbacks. Jarminski was among those indicted by the grand jury, as was Michael Rudolph, the owner of Healthcare Pharmacy, which is named in Lujan's lawsuit. Rudolph was indicted along with Jarminski for fraud and involuntary manslaughter, as was the scheme's alleged mastermind, Kareem Ahmed. 57-year-old Tim Shelley, owner of Tim's Plumbing, was arrested on felony charges of, charges of workers' compensation, insurance fraud, and grand theft. A joint investigation discovered that Shelley deliberately failed to obtain workers' compensation insurance for his employees. There were instances in which employees were injured and were discouraged from claiming workers' compensation benefits. Further investigation revealed that Shelley was also allegedly operating a warranty replacement scam. The scam involved removing warranty tags on water heaters installed for customers and then turning in a false warranty claim. Warranty claim. Shelley received a number of free replacement units from the manufacturer. The Humboldt County District Attorney's Office will be prosecuting the case. If convicted, Shelley faces up to 18 years in state prison and $260,000 in fines. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted an updated time of hire pamphlet on its website. The pamphlet now has the new pre-designation of personal physician and notice of personal chiropractor or acupuncturist forms that are effective on July 1, 2014. The pamphlet, which is posted in English and Spanish versions, meets the Labor Code Section 3551 requirements to notify new employees about California workers' compensation rights and benefits either at the time of hire or by the end of the first pay period. The time of hire pamphlet was created in 2011 to help employers and claims administrators ensure that employees know what to do in case of workplace injury. It was modified in 2013 to reflect changes to make to reflect changes made to California's workers' compensation system by 8 SB 863. This pamphlet can be customized as long as the text meets the time of hire legal requirements. Title 8, California Code of Regulations, Section 9883, allows insurers, employers, or private enterprises to prepare and publish the pamphlet upon prior approval of the form and content of the pamphlet by the, the administrative director. An entity may no longer use a previously approved pamphlet with the old pre-designation forms. A revised pamphlet should be submitted for approval with the new forms. Claims administrators will be provided a grace period until September 1, 2014 to send an updated pamphlet. California lawmakers moved to restrict the number of football practices in which students are allowed to tackle each other Legislators are concerned that permanent brain, da brain damage could result from concussions among high school athletes. The measure, 
would require approval from a medical professional before students who suffer head injuries may return to the field. It is the latest action by U.S. lawmakers to try to minimize brain damage to professionals and students during sporting events. If signed by Governor Jerry Brown, AB 2127 would make California the 20th state to restrict practices by middle school and high school football teams during which tackling and other full contact activities are allowed. Several studies have noted an increase in high school concussions in recent years, although it is not clear whether the rise is due to more injuries or improved diagnosis. Numerous professional players have developed severe symptoms believed to have been caused by repeated head trauma. Under this bill, any player who is suspected of having a head injury must be removed from athletic activity for the rest of the day. He or she cannot return to play unless the activity is approved by a licensed health care provider. The bill also forbids high school or middle school football teams from conducting more than two practices per week during the season and preseason during which tackling and other full contact activities are allowed. Such practices are banned altogether during the off-season and may last no more than 90 minutes during the season. And in medical news, the California Department of Insurance announced an agreement with the University of California San Francisco to provide competitive information to consumers about health care prices and quality. The Healthcare Pricing and Quality Transparency Project is funded by a Federal Cycle 3 rate review grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as part of an initiative under the Affordable Care Act. Consumers today have limited or no access to information about the price and quality of healthcare services before care. Some say that purchasing healthcare is like shopping in a department store with a bag over your head. You have no idea what the medical costs are before you get the bill. Transparency in medical pricing should improve competition and result in lower medical costs as patients will vote with their feet if medical provider prices exceed those of competitors. Researchers at the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF will collect and analyze data to develop price and quality information for a number of common medical procedures and episodes of care. The information will be made available online. UCSF will also convene a collaborative stakeholder process with a diverse range of stakeholders. They will obtain ongoing feedback regarding the project, build partnerships with interested parties, and ensure the healthcare pricing and quality project provides useful information to a number of important audiences. This is the first price and quality transparency initiative undertaken by the state of California. And in financial news, a new 23-state study from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute shows that prices paid to ambulatory surgery centers in some states were triple that in other states. This study hopes to help policymakers and system stakeholders to better understand the ambulatory surgery center's payment for common surgeries in their state, how they compare with others, and the role of different types of fee schedules. The study examines payments for commonly used outpatient surgery per surgeries performed at ASCs in 23 large states, including California. This data represents over two-thirds of the workers' compensation benefits paid in the United States. The following are among the study's findings. 
ASC payments for the same surgeries performed in higher cost states were at least three times the payments for similar surgeries performed in lower cost states. For example, the average payment for knee arthroscopies was less than $2,000 in four study states and more than $6,000 in seven study states. Average payments for outpatient surgeries were typically higher in states without fee schedules. Payments for common surgeries were more predictable in states with fixed amount fee schedules and less predictable in states without fixed amount fee schedules. This study looked at actual payments for medical facility services that are associated with common surgical episodes for treating shoulder and knee injury conditions for workers with workers' compensation claims. And in other news, Early this year, State Senator Leland Yee was indicted for public corruption as part of a major FBI undercover sting operation. Prosecutors said Yee consorted with an alleged San Francisco Chinatown gangster, Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, in a scheme that involved conspiracy to traffic in firearms, money laundering, murder for hire, drug distribution, and what the law calls defrauding citizens of honest service or political corruption. Yi is free on bail, awaiting trial. He has been suspended from the Senate. He dropped out of the race for California Secretary of State shortly after his arrest, but it was too late to take his name off the June ballot. And the California voters did not seem to get the memo about his indictment nor the voluntary withdrawal of his candidacy for Secretary of State. In this month's California election, there was one jaw-dropping result. More than 350,000 ballots were cast for Yee for Secretary of State, good enough for third place, even though he dropped out and was under indictment. This came as a surprise to pundits, as well as the other seven candidates. This was better than Yee's fifth place showing as a candidate for mayor in 2011. The vote count for non-candidate Leland Yee does not stand alone in the history of jaw-dropping election results from profoundly uninformed California voters. Sherman Block was the 29th Sheriff of Los Angeles County from January 1982 until his death. He was preceded by Peter Pitches and succeeded by Lee Baca. He died during his campaign for re-election, which he was expected to win. He still obtained about one-third of the vote by voters who apparently were unaware that he was dead. The California workers' compensation system is a highly politically influenced, is highly politically influenced. One would hope that voters would be informed of the consequences of various political issues and strategies before selecting a candidate for office and make a wise and well-informed choice. Vote counts such as the one for disgraced suspended Senator Leland Yee should raise some question about efficiency of the California electoral process. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.